and praise. Well, brothers and sisters, today we'll be considering Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And it is a wonderful passage. If you could pick a couple of verses in the letter of Ephesians that would summarize the, con the content of its teaching from chapter 1 to chapter 6. It is those two verses of chapter 5. One of the, one of the many tensions that we face as Christians, uh, uh, especially in our day and age, is how do we live faithful lives how do we live faithful lives in such a corrupt and, and destructive society, in such a permissive uh, context as the, ones, uh, the one that we live in? The Word of God makes demands on us. He calls, it calls us to be holy, just as God is holy. And yet, as we look around and we, we, we see so much permissiveness, so, so much ungodliness and unholiness uh, around us in society, the question becomes, how, how, or is, how do we live in such a world? How we walk in such a, a context? How can we be faithful in this generation? Some have come to the conclusion that you can't that the demands of the Word of God are just too high and we need to make concessions, we need to conform ourselves, we need to, to negotiate with the world in these people's minds trying to live up to God's standards is unrealistic, it's utopic, it's, uh, it's fanaticism. I don't know if you've ever been accused by another Christian brother as you're trying to be faithful to the word of being a fanatical. But that's the, the reality. Some have come to that conclusion. They say that these are different times, that the demands of scripture were, were there, but we now live in different circumstances and it's so much more difficult. We need to be sensible. We need to accommodate ourselves. But I ask myself, is it that is that the case? Was it the case that in the first century, as Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, was it the case that the world then was much better than the world is now in terms of, ungodly, uh, of their godliness? Was it that the world then was not as ungodly as the world now? And I think that is not the case, as we see both from Ephesians and, and other letters in the first century. The world was equally depraved perhaps even more uh, outwardly depraved. And Paul is clear when he writes to the Ephesians, uh, as we've read in the, in the last few weeks, that there was uncleanness. The Gentiles walked uh, as, uh, in the futility of their mind, and there was all uncleanness and gr with greediness, lewdness and profanity and fornication and idolatry and covetousness. And, and if it, it was not just in Ephesus, it was in Rome. Uh, you read the, the letter of Paul to the Romans, the, the last part of chapter 1, and you get an, the same picture. George Santayana, he said that civilization is but the refinement of brutality. And it is truth. So the truth, civilization is but, but a, 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 a... Civilization doesn't suppress uh, barbarism. It just refines it. It only perfects it. And that's what we see. All uncleanness, working in the futility of their minds. So the demands that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, puts on the Ephesians here, the, the, the imperative here, is just as relevant to us as it was to them. And the good news is that just the same th power that was at work in them who believed then is the same power, as Paul says in chapter 3, is the same power that is at work in us who believe today. How is it that we are faithful in our day and age? Not by our own strength, Paul says, not by your, your own power, 
but by the power that was at work in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. The power that, that saved you is the power that keeps you. It's the power of God, the omnipotent, almighty power of God is at work in you now. That's why Paul, in the, in the, in the passage that we've considered the, the last few weeks, says, you have learned from Christ. You haven't learned just about Christ. Christ dwells in you by your, his spirit. Now, therefore, that power is at work in you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Let's read those two verses again. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. So today we will consider the topic of holiness. And we'll consider it under three headings. Firstly, the standard of holiness, the what? Be imitators of God. Secondly, the reason for holiness, the why? As dear children. And thirdly, the supreme expression of that holiness, the how? Walking in Christ-like sacrificial love. So the what, the why, and the how? So let us look first at the standard. What is required of us as Christians living in, in this permissive, corrupt society? Verse 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God. That is our standard. That is the requirement that is set upon us. Be imitators of God. The word be there uh, is an interesting word. It's the, the Greek word ginestai, ginestai, which is a word that is... Uh, conveys the idea, conveys the sense of becoming. Uh, the, one of the dictionaries says, is to possess certain characteristics with the implication of them having been acquired. It's, it's more of a becoming. Paul is saying, therefore, become imitators of God. And again, the, another interesting word there, imitate. What does it mean to imitate? It means to behave in a manner uh, that is uh, similar, equal to someone else. Probably many of us have played those games with children, or as children we play those games with adults and with one another, of mimicking one another. Perhaps sometimes to make, uh, uh, to make funny of a situation, we imitate someone else. Uh, we imitate a politician, or we imitate... We imitate. We, we know what that means the way they speak, the way they move, the way they gesture. And what Paul is saying here, we, we are to mimic, we are to imitate God in a conscious and deliberate way. We are to copy God. That is our standard. If you are a believer, if you're a true disciple of Christ, your standard of behavior is to mimic, to imitate God. It's not to follow a set rules of things that are forbidden and things that are demanded of you. It is to imitate, to be a copy of God. What God wants from us, plain and simply, is that we became, become in his image and likeness in this world. But that, that is a different, difficult thing, isn't it? That's a very high standard, first of all. Uh, but it is a difficult thing. God is spirit. How are we to imitate God whom we cannot see? Well, God was made flesh. He came and dwelt among us. He, he lived that life in our presence. Our Lord Jesus is the one we imitate. And he taught us this same message. It's not just in Ephesians. It is all throughout. I had difficulty this 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 week to pick and choose the passages to look at or to mention because it is all throughout scripture. There are too many for me to, 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 to be comprehensive or to be complete in, in, in showing them to you. But look at the Sermon on the Mount of our Lord. He says, this I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And you ask, why, Jesus? Why, Lord, are we to do those things? Is it because the, the, the book of morals, uh, the, 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 the ethics uh, are, demand this of us? 
Now Jesus says, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You do these things because you're sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son, and here's the pattern, here's the, the, the example that we mimic. Why is it that we are to do it? Because he's our father. And he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What Jesus is saying is, look at your father in heaven. Look at how he behaves. You are to behave in the same manner. And then he, he goes on to say at the end, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your father in heaven is perfect. We are to imitate God. Again, our Lord Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. We are to imitate God in our love for one another because he has loved us. That's the mimicking part. You also love one another, he says. Imitate me, says the Lord. Love as I love. Love one another as I have loved you. How you loved of God, just like we've read in 1 John. Then love one another. Imitate me, just Paul says, just as I also imitate Christ. Paul to the Philippians, chapter, um, three, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Let this mind be uh, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think like Christ. Christ thought, imitate Christ in his thinking, in his actions. Peter says that Christ left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. 1 John, the whole letter, in fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he who abides in him should also walk as he walked. He is the pattern. He is our model. If we are Christians, the standard we are to follow is this and no other. Now, I need to caveat this when we say that we are to imitate God. God is transcendent. God is omnipotent, all-knowing, all-present. All, all he is uh, spirit. We cannot imitate those attributes. And the theologians in, in, in history, they've, they've been very careful in drawing these distinctions between the attributes of God. The attributes of God is a, a way of saying, what makes God, God? When we talk about God, what are the attributes of God? So omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, um, um, all all-sufficient. All of those things are attributes of God. But then there are other attributes as well, love. Wisdom, justice, righteousness, holiness of God, the wrath of God, those are other attributes. And when theologians look at the attributes, they draw a distinction between them. There are some attributes that pertain to God alone. These are called, in, in the theolo theologian spiel, uh, the incommunicable attributes of God. We cannot be as powerful as God is. We cannot imitate him in his power in his, uh, in his presence. We cannot imitate him in those things. But we can imitate him in the communicable, that's communicate, communicate those attributes that he can give to us, that we can imitate him in his love, in his mercy, in his grace. We can imitate him in his uh, righteousness and justice. We can imitate him in those things. And Paul says that we are to copy him. Those character, that character of God, that we are to imitate it, to copy it, to live in the same way. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Not a saint in the church and a devil at home or at work, but a holy person in all your conduct. Which brings us incidentally to, to, to something that we considered in fact yesterday, but I'll, I'll mention it here today as well. Which is the role of the law. Yesterday, we, uh, our brother John Saunders, for those of us who were unable to be here, we, in the day of prayer and Bible study, he talked about the, the role of the law 
and the moral law in particular, how it is good for us, how, is it, how it is not burdensome for us. And the reason why it's not burdensome is because the law of God is a revelation of his character. The law of God for us, the role of the law for us as Christians is to reveal to us the character of God. Those Ten Commandments, those laws in the Old Testament, they reveal to us the character of God. That's why they are still valid for us, because we want to imitate God. God did not change from the Old Testament to the New, became something different. He is the same God from the Old Testament, and his character is the same. And because in those commandments, in those uh, narratives we see the character of God we look to them and we obey them David says oh how I love your law all day long it is my meditation why because David understood that the law of God was not burdensome the commandments of God were not burdensome but the commandments of God revealed the character of God that he loved Romans chapter 7 Paul says or chapter 7 verse 12 Paul says the same thing he tells us that the law of God is holy, just, and good. And he says that the righteous man delights in that law. And a true Christian is reflected in our love for the law of God. Because we love him, we love his character, we love his law. We obey his law. We're, not, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace, but that doesn't mean that the law doesn't apply to us. What it means when, it, when the scripture says that the law has been fulfilled, that we're no longer under the law, it says that we're no longer uh, subject to the penalties of that law. Christ came, lived, and died uh, on that cross, and he paid the penalty of us breaking that law. But we still are to obey it because we love the, the lawgiver. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who does not keep his commandments does not love him. Because that, then, not keeping the commandments of God is rejecting the character, the, the, the character and the, and, the, and, the, and the beauty of God. Some people think that the commandments of God are these, are, reveal a character of God that is, uh, that God doesn't like us to be happy. As if God sees something that makes us happy and goes, oh, they're having too much fun. Let's forbid that. That's not the case. As our brother was saying yesterday, the commandments of God are meant to lead us to a blessed life, to a happy life, to a fulfilled life. The Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. He rejoices to do us good. And when he sets that path for us in the law, when he sets that path for us in his commandments, it's for our good. And we can only be happy and blessed when we uh, are obedient to his words. So that's the standard that we have, to be holy just as God is holy, to be imitators of God. You and I, all of us, this is not for exceptionally good Christians and some other Christians that this standard doesn't apply to them. This is not for the ministers and the pastors and the deacons and for the rest, for the normal, for the common Christian, this, this is uh, optional. Oh, this is for every Christian, for all of us. But Paul also gives us the reason, secondly, the why. Look again at verse, we're still in verse 1. Look again, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Why are we to imitate God? Because we are his children. We all understand this. Children imitate their parents. Children try to live, uh, at least in their younger years, uh, to the standard of their parents. And we all understand how decisive uh, an influence parents have on their children. We all understand this. Some people believe it's more uh, genetical and, and less learned. Uh, some people believe it's more a learned behavior rather than genetical. I, I don't know if what, uh, what percentages apply here, whether it's nature or nurture, but the reality is that children tend to be 
imitators of their parents. My wife loves to remind me of this. Whenever my children uh, misbehave or are being stubborn, particularly when they're being stubborn, she says, well, they take it after you. And perhaps it is true, they learn it from us. When my, one of my children, I'll, uh, I won't say he or she or the name, when, uh, when one of my children uh, scowls and makes this uh, face that clearly demonstrates that they're unhappy, uh, my wife says, hey, it's just like you. He takes it after you. It is the reality. He, he or she apparently learned that behavior from me, that trait from me, that character from me. And Paul says we, we learn the holy character not by following a set uh, amount of rules. We learn it because we are God's children, because we have been transformed. We are no longer children of, of the devil. We're no longer uh, in this world. We've now been had a change of our nature. We've now been made uh, adopted children of God, and now we behave like him. Paul already mentioned this. We were transformed. We have to put on the new man that is created according to God. It's according to God in his, in his design. We are to imitate him. The former manner of life is gone. Now we have a new manner of life. The old man is gone. Now we have a new man to put on. And it is him that we imitate. In, righteous, in true righteousness and holiness, he says. We are to resemble God. And here, I must, I must say, it is true that we so often fail in this, that our lifestyle uh, doesn't clearly demonstrate this. But Paul goes even further, doesn't he? He doesn't say just that we are to be imitators of God as children of God. But as dear children, the word there is a lovely word, and I'm sure you've, uh, even those of you uh, who know very little of Greek language have come across this word, agape. And the word there is agapetos, as dear children, as beloved children, as children who are the, 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 the object of the love of God, as dear children. That kind of heightens it, doesn't it? It's not just that we are children, it's that we are beloved children. We are dear children. We are children that have been object of the greatest of love and affection on the part of God. And here we, we, we kind of bring it back to our own uh, situation as parents and as children. None of, us is our, none of us are perfect parents in demonstrating our love to our children. We all fail. We all uh, fall short of demonstrating that love that we have for them in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way at times. So our children, when they grow older, or we as children, when we grow older, we go, yeah, I'm not going to imitate my father. I'm not going to imitate my mother in that. But we, God is not like that, is it? Because he loves us and his love is perfect and he never ever fails or is evil towards us. So it heightens our need to imitate him. We are beloved children. He adds to the weight. Our heavenly father, he is perfect and wise. He is love, scripture says. And then he says that we are the object of his greatest love. How much did God love you? Well, he sent his only begotten son to this world. How much was he kind to you? How much was he compassionate, tender, merciful to you? Can you be more like, more kind, more loving, more compassive? This is the argument. Again, it is the argument of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do all these things, be children of your father, for this is how he behaves. He loves. He loves even the wicked. Not with the same kind of love that he loves the, the, his children. Not with the same uh, gravity of love that he loves uh, his people. But God demonstrates his love for a fallen 
world in the fact that he reigns both on the wicked and the righteous, in the fact that he sends, uh, uh, makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Yes, he loves us with a special kind of love, but he loves the world. He loves, generally speaking, all. And that's why he, he demonstrates that love in, being forbear in his forbearance, being patient, giving ample opportunity for people to repent. But to us, he says, with an everlasting love have I loved you. And therefore, we are to be his imitators. That is the reason, because we are beloved children. We are dear children. What manner of love the Father loved us with, bestowed upon us, that we would be called the children of God while we were still yet enemies, while we were still yet in our sins, and that he loves us today while we still fall so short and we don't live faithfully to him and we are not obedient as we should be to him. If God has so loved us, John says, in the passage that we read there earlier, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Which brings us to the supreme Thirdly, to the supreme expression of a holiness. The supreme expression of holiness. It's the specific directive in imitating God that Paul puts first and foremost is there in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ has, also, uh, has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. How are we to imitate God? That's the third point. How? Well, we are to imitate God in walking in love, in loving one another. Just as Christ himself loved us and gave himself for us, an offering, a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma. Love is the principle that is to rule our lives. God is love. And if we are to be imitators of God, love is to be the principle that, that overrules and governs us. Colossians 3.14. But all, above all these things, above everything else, Paul says, above everything else, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Put on love. Dress it up. If people look at you, Paul says, if uh, the word of God says, if people are looking at you, it doesn't matter if they're looking uh, face to face, if they're looking at your back from the top, from any side that they look at you, if they look at you, they need to see love. Be clothed in love. Paul says, let all things you do, let all things done be done in love. If there is one thing, brothers and sisters, that should characterize us, it's not a, the way we worship, it's not the way we, we dress, it's not the way we, and if we love, those things will uh, come from that. But if there is one thing that should characterize us as children of God, is the way we love. Christ said, if in this they, they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, if you have love for one another. And here again, I, I need to, to caveat this and say that love, that scripture's view of love is not the, the way that our culture thinks of love. Love in our culture is this Hollywood kind of love, this sentimentalism, this unwillingness to, 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 to speak truth. The, the, the love uh, in scripture is a love that speaks truth. It's a love that speaks truth in kindness, speaks truth uh, in, in, in uh, tenderness, but it is a love that, that pursues truth. 
But it's not mere sentimentalism. It's not a passing emotion. The, the Hollywood kind of love is this love that uh, you love today, you don't love tomorrow, you, you fall in love, and you, you, in those kind of, it's not that kind of love. It's a love that is exemplified to us in the life of Christ Jesus. It's a love that bears the reproach. It's a love that is not dependent on the actions of the other. It's a love that is sacrificial. It's a love that is, uh, that is free. Paul describes the practice of this love in Romans chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Again, it's a love that speaks truth. Not a love that lies. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached me or reproached you fell on me. That is the dominant principle of the, the Christian life as we imitate God. Love is the principle. Paul says in, in that beautiful chapter that gets quoted in every single wedding ceremony, uh, uh, both of Bible-believing Christians and even uh, secular ceremonies, funnily enough, but it is not a, a chapter about love between a husband and a wife, 1 Corinthians 13, it is a chapter about the love of the Christian, or about the need for the Christian to have love. His, Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So that's what Paul says, walk in love. That's the supreme expression of that holiness that we are to imitate. The reverse side of this, the reverse side of this, if holiness is to love, the reverse side of this coin is that every time we do that love, every action that we do, no matter how righteous it seems to an onlooker, every action that we do, if it's not ruled by the purpose of love, brothers and sisters, make no mistake, it is sin. It is sin. What are the two, what are the, how can you summarize the law of God? Once they ask what is the greatest commandments of our Lord, where, how you summarize the law? Love God, love your neighbor. That's the summary of God's character, love. Love for God, love for neighbor. Whatever else is done that is not out of love for God and love for neighbor, is sin. But Paul is a little bit more specific, isn't he? Paul is slightly more specific. And we'll, we'll look just at those two specific points that he brings. Two ways that we demonstrate that love. Two ways that we walk in love. What does it mean? Paul gives us two specific directives. First of all, it means to forgive all those who have hurt us, who have trespassed against us. No matter what they did against us, we are to forgive. It means to forgive those who offend us. When Paul says, be therefore imitators, therefore be imitators of God, as I said to you before, when you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself, why is it therefore? And it, it, it is connected to the things that Paul has just said. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So number one, we are to forgive. Being imitators of God is the supreme... Uh, uh, being imitator of God will demand from us the capacity to forgive like God forgives. Forgiveness is the supreme evidence of God's love. If you could think of the, the greatest proof, the greatest way that God demonstrates his love, 
the, the most visible way that God demonstrates his love. How is that? It's in God's forgiveness of sinners, in God's forgiveness of myself, of yourself. That's the supreme evidence of God's love. And that should be the supreme evidence of our holiness, of us imitating God, of our, us becoming more and more like God, is our capacity to forgive. And it wasn't easy for God to forgive you. Sometimes Christians will say, but you don't understand how hard it is to forgive. Well, I don't understand your particular predicament. But I understand that it is hard to forgive because it was hard for God to forgive us. You realize the cost that it took for God to forgive us? It was much harder for him to forgive you. That's the supreme demonstration of his love. And there is no way, if I wanted uh, to measure my love, there is not a, 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 a gadget that you buy on Amazon and you, you, you do a blood test, so this is, you have X amount of grams of love in you. There is no way of measuring love, but I'll tell you how you measure love. The, me the capacity you have to love is connected to your capacity to forgive. That is the, the standard. There is no love meter, there is no instrument, but the same capacity that you have to forgive is the same capacity that you have to love. That is its extent. I don't want to sound overly dour or negative here because it is the word of God that says it. He who does not love does not know God. So what does it mean to walk in love? It means to maintain a constant readiness, and we've, we could speak for hours here about what it means to forgive and what it means to forgive a person if the person is not repentant. We won't go there today. But at least this. It means that we have a constant readiness to forgive, a desire, a, a, a yearning for that forgiveness, for that reconciliation. Forgive the people who hurt me, slander me, betray me, persecute me, speak all manners of evils and wrongs against me. That's what God does all the time. And here I'll hide myself behind another man and, and quote him, our brother John MacArthur. He says, an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction of terms. An unforgiving Christian is a contradiction of terms. When you see someone who claims to be a Christian and stubbornly refuses to let go of a grudge, there is good reason to question whether that person's faith is genu genuine." End quote. It's not easy to forgive. I'm not saying it is. It is hard. It goes against our our pride and our self-interest. It goes against our desires and our, our, it goes against us and everything that is in us. That is the, the nature of the Christian life. I decrease, he increases. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, God has given you the capacity to forgive. He has enlightened your understanding by his spirit. He has taught you in his word to take the matter seriously. Matthew 18. And if you're a child of God, you will love as he loved. You'll forgive as he forgives. That's the example our Lord set for us. If we are to imitate Christ, right? As he's standing there on the cross, the greatest of injustices. I don't need to know the injustice that so-and-so did to you. I don't need to know the injustice that uh, uh, John or, or Jane have committed against you. The injustice of what was done to Christ 
is incomparable. It's the greatest injustice this world has ever seen. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the one who never did any wrong, hanging there on the tree. That's the greatest of injustices. And as he's hanging there, he lo looks to the Father, and they're unrepentant. He looks to the Father and says, Father, forgive them, but they do not know what they do. That's the example that Stephen gave to us as well. As the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, even Paul, the apostle, at the time Saul of Tarsus, was there stoning him to death. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. That willingness to forgive. We will have throughout our lives many ways and to forgive people in many ways and of many things. We'll have good people do wrong things to us. But we are to walk in love in forgiving. And second directive, and I'll be quick. To walk in love means to sacrifice for others. As Christ also loved us and gave, has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. God, Christ, he demonstrated his love for us by sacrificing himself, by offering himself. An offering and sacrifice here are almost synonymous, but they convey different things. The offering element conveys the, the willingness, his self-giving, his mind, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, even at the time that he came. Can you imagine the, the huge descent that it is for the whole thrice holy God to take on flesh and come and live in a world that is filled with sin? Everything to him must have seemed putrid and, and, and foul. But ultimately, his offering, willingness, was seen on the cross where he offered his life a ransom. He laid it down willingly. But he sacrificed himself for others. He died in our place. He was consumed for our iniquities. He received on our, in our place the full wrath of God that was coming to us. He sacrificed himself. He suffered our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah says that in iniquity of us all laid on him. Why? Love. Love. If you're his, he loved you to that extent. He did not simply uh, make a statement from heaven, send us a note down, like uh, saying, oh, by the way, just so you know, I love you. That's all I wanted you to know, I love you. No, he came down from heaven. He demonstrated that love. He acted upon that love. And that's what it means to love and to imitate. Now, most of us, all of us perhaps, we will never be called to give our lives, literally speaking, for one another. There's no ill... Uh, willed person coming into this, to this meeting place, uh, I suppose, with a gun uh, pointing at, at, a, at a brother of ours, and you jump in front and you take the bullet from him. Most of us will never face uh, a kind of sacrifice like that, that we need to make. But when John tells us that we are to love one another, when John tells us that we are lo to love one another, he then gives us a few examples of how that love demonstrates 
itself. John, John says that we must lay our lives down for the brethren, right? It's a similar tone. We, we, we are to love one another and lay our, our lives down for the brethren. And yes, we don't give our lives literally as a sacrifice, most of us, or although we should perhaps, but we don't have that opportunity. But then he goes on to, knowing this, he goes on to explain that the way we do it, on the practical level, lay down our lives for a brother, for one another, is to, when you see one hungering, when you see one in need, you don't close his heart off to him. You don't close your heart against him. How do you love as God loves? By sacrificing yourself in those places where it brings uh, pain or suffering to you. That's the sacrificial love that we are to have for one another. Where we lay down our interests, our time, our goods, our selfish desires for one another. And he who is not willing to love, John says, he has not known God. So I'll finish by asking all of us, each and every one of us, to examine ourselves in this last week that has gone by. In what ways have we demonstrated that love? In what ways have we deliberately tried to imitate Christ by walking in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us? How many brethren of mine have benefited from my love this week? How many people in the world have benefited from my love this week? Because this, this now is in the context of how we behave in the world as well. How have I treated my coworker, my, my unbelieving family member? How have I demonstrated that Christ-like love to others? I've been talking with Peter uh, uh, over the last few months about the outreach. Um, we've, we've not been doing the outreach as we used to, door to door. And we've been talking even about the effectiveness of it these days. If, is it as effective as it was back then uh, to go door to door or are other more effective ways to do outreach? And we've, we've been speaking about this. I'll tell you where, what's the most effective outreach program in a church. I'll tell you the, the, the one thing that would change the way that this church reaches out for the better. Verse 1 and 2, particularly verse 2. As you go out and walk in love for your brethren, as you shine that light, even before you say to them that you're a Christian, you, they, they see that love, that kindness, that tenderness, their, their willingness to forgive, that, that difference of behavior that is so unlike the world. That, that is the most effective means of evangelism. We spoke a few weeks ago, didn't we, about the, the fact that we all have a ministry. That the ministry is not just pertaining to the pastor in the pulpit. That the ministry is pertaining to every single Christian. We all, Christian, we all have a ministry. Our ministry is in, in the church as we uh, build, up one, build one another up, as we stir one another up, as we come to church. And, 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 and as iron sharpens iron, we, we, we help each other to, to, in this way. Our ministry is in our homes and in our families. Uh, our ministry is to our broader family members. Our ministry is in our workplaces, with your boss, with your manager, with your coworker, with your with that employee that works for you, with those, uh, with, with those people that come through the door and you serve. You serve them and you do all these things in love, walking in love. That is the most effective ministry that this church would ever, could ever have. And I ask, how does the world see us when they look at us? Do they see us for our compassion, for our kindness? Do they see us for the mercy that we have, for the tenderness that we have, for our, the readiness to serve? Or do they see us as self-centered, egotistical persons? 
And I want to say this just in closing as well. For those who are not children of God. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Imitating God will not make you a dear a child. In fact, you cannot imitate God. You, we imitate because we are children. And the degree of perfection it means that no one, none of us can do it perfectly at every single moment of our lives. But you know what? There is one person who did it perfectly, who filled that standard of perfection, of being, of loving others, of being obedient to God's law fully, perfectly, from, from the moment he was born to the moment he died on that cross in Calvary's tree. And the good news of the gospel is this. You don't need to save yourself. You cannot save yourself. You just need to believe in the one that gave his life a ransom for many. And it is by faith. And then your righteousness, your, your, rather your unrighteousness is taken away and you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul says in Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is put on us. The only way you get to heaven, the only way you get to being in the, in the favor of God is not by dragging yourself up by your boots. It's by trusting in him who gave himself as a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma. Do not despise it, the gift that is freely given to you today. For there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else. For there is only one name under heaven by which man is to be saved, and that is Christ. He gave his life for the sins of others, so that now his righteousness is available to everyone who believes. May the Lord help you, and may the Lord help us in applying this word.